Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The Regulation 2 guest today. We'll hear from the environmental journalist Tina Gerhardt on the recently concluded COP28 conference. And then the historian Forrest Hilton will fill us in on Argentina's new president, the eccentric libertarian Javier Malay. COP28, the acronym for the 28th Conference of Parties, UN speak for the giant annual meeting on climate change, was held in Dubai, United Arab Emirates, from November 30th to December 13th. As I said in introducing my first guest commentary on last year's edition, it was not without achievement, but its accomplishments were just not up to the task. Same thing this year. Fossil fuels are named as a culprit for the first time in almost three decades of these shindigs, but the words phase-out or eliminate were nowhere to be found. That the meeting was hosted and led by one of the world's largest oil exporters probably had something to do with that, though it's not like Biden's government was eager to squeeze those words into the closing communique either. Once again, funds needed for poorer countries to recover from the damage done to them, mostly by us and the rich countries, and to finance a green transition there, were not forthcoming. But while it's easy to mock these extravagances, they're actually far from meaningless. For more, here's the climate journalist Tina Gerhardt. Her writing has been published by Grist, The Progressive, The Nation, Sierra Magazine, and The Washington Monthly. She was last in this show in May to discuss her book, Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean, published that month by the University of California Press. Tina Gerhardt. How did this year's event compare to the last few uh, versions of it? I think this year's COP28, which took place in the United Arab Emirates, in a lot of ways it was a wash. I mean, the results were really mixed. On the one hand, you have this, everybody was touting it, this historic use of fossil fuels in the agreement, which is called a global stock take. You have that inclusion for the first time, but then there's absolutely no steps indicated to get to the phase out of fossil fuels. Phase out isn't even language that's in there. And then I think one of the huge issues too is that there was no movement forward in response to your question of compared to last year, there was no movement forward with funding from the global north to the global south in order to help nations that are at the front lines deal with the impacts they're already facing. I remember from the previous editions that loss and damage was a, a deadly phrase. Um, how'd that fare this year? Really no movement at all. That's specifically the facility that I'm, I'm talking about. So loss and damage facility um, is UN speak for things that have been irretrievably lost due to the climate crisis or damaged, obviously, you know, meaning they could be resuscitated, but both due to the climate crisis. And that's a facility that nations in the global South have been pushing for for 30 years since these negotiations started in 1992 in Rio. They got that across the finish line last year but no details were spelled out last year. So all that work had to be done. Meaning, what kind of a funding mechanism are we talking about? Where is the money going to come from? How much money are different nations going to contribute? What this boils down to is just rich countries who did all the damage have to pay poor countries for that damage, right? That's, and that's the big sticking point. Exactly. The rich countries don't want to pay. Exactly. They're, yes, exactly. The rich countries are historically responsible because historically they've been emitting the most. Uh, frontline communities are disproportionately in the global south, but you can't generalize that because inequities exist within global north countries. We can think of parts of the U.S. that are affected, um, but that's really the, the heart of the issue, and they're not taking any steps. And so it's not just loss and damages. The other thing that I would point to that fits into that same category is the fact that way back in 2009 in Copenhagen, nations in the global north said that they would pay $100 billion a year to nations in the global south per year. They have never hit that target. And then they got an extension you know, to, to do this to 2025. It was supposed to be by 2020. And they have never hit that target. So there's a real, long story shorter in some, there's a real lack of finance from the global north to the global south. One of the things that was really surreal about this uh, event was that it was held <laughs> in one of the world's largest oil exporters, and the place was crawling with uh, carbon lobbyists, right? What did that do to the proceedings? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a huge issue, and I'm glad you're bringing attention to it. So like I mentioned at the top, the COP28 was hosted by Dubai, United Arab Emirates, and that's one of the top 10 oil-producing nations globally. And, and as if that wasn't bad enough, the person who was in charge, who was the president this year, is the person who was also in charge of Abu Dhabi's national oil company, President Sultan al-Jaber. He's the chief executive of ADNOC, which is United Arab Emirates State Oil Company. And then, as if those two things weren't bad enough, this year marked the year that we had the most fossil fuel lobbyists ever in the history of COPS. There was over 4,000. I mean, this is just a, a combination of factors that is unprecedented. Last year, COP27 took place in, in an oil-rich country. Next year, it's going to be COP29 in Azerbaijan, so that path will continue. And there's a number of ways that that played out. Saudi Arabia really wanted to make sure that the focus was not on fossil fuels, but on emissions, because we're really getting to the point where the phase out of fossil fuels is something more and more nations are demanding. And they're like, no, 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 let's not talk about fossil fuels. Let's focus on the emissions. You can't have one without the other, though. Right, right. They just don't want to get at the culprit. It's like, talk about the effect, but not the source, right? It's like, so that was one issue. And then Saudi Arabia and OPEC and allied nations sent a letter to um, heads of state asking them not to mention fossil fuels which is something that, you know, most of the nations around the world just pushed back on. I mean, it's over 140 nations wanted an inclusion specifically of the phrase phase out fossil fuels. They lobbied for that last year. It was in and then it got watered down. This year it was in an initial draft and then it got watered down from phase out of fossil fuels to phase down of fossil fuels to transition away from them with no details about how that transition would play out. This is something Antonio Guterres said that, that this is the end for the fossil fuel industry. And I think that's right. Even if the details weren't spelled out, I think when you have over the majority of the nations, over 140 of 190 some odd pushing for this, I think that movement is going to keep going on like next year at COP29. I think that's going to be one of the big two issues. The money that we already talked about would be the other issue. And I think the writing is on the wall. Somebody um, pulled together a list of all the different fossil fuel projects that have been signed just in the 24 hours after the agreement was gaveled in. And it's just a bonanza, but I think it's also one of those bonanzas or spending sprees that is signaling that this is really the last hurrah. It's kind of like let's party like it's 1999 or something. Other uh, bits of surreal phraseology, a phase down of unabated coal power. What in God's name does that mean? Yeah, isn't that a lovely mouthful? The phase down of unabated coal. I mean, it's just, okay. So the thing that might be, given what we just talked about that your listeners might you know, be familiar with, is phase down is not phase out, right? It's a watered down version of a phase out. So that's the first part of it. Unabated coal power. I mean, somebody, I think from the Washington Post, wrote an entire article on this word unabated and abated because it deserved it. What is unabated coal power? Okay, coal power is clear. Unabated is when it can keep emitting into the air without being abated, without being reined in, without anything to reduce the emissions. Abated coal power is another way of referring to carbon capture and storage. And that's, of course, the, the carbon sector's favorite trick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is absolutely, this is one of their favorite tricks, smoke and mirrors. Um, basically, it's super expensive is one issue. The other issue with it is that it has not been ramped up to scale in order to address the emissions coming from coal power. So you can have this language of accelerating efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power, which leave open the door for carbon capture storage, CCS is another way of referring to it. But if it hasn't been ramped up to scale, you're not really reducing those emissions. So that's, you know, another way of saying we have just opened the door for more burning of coal when we aren't reducing the emissions. And that's a big win for the fossil fuel industry right there. Carbon capture may work someday, but we're a long way from that. So this is meaningless for the, the present and the immediate future. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and they also talk about gas as a transitional fuel. That's another one of the uh, <laughs> the dodges they pursue. Yeah, it's the fancy little tricks of, of the fossil fuel industry here. 
there's a discussion in the final document, which is like 21 pages long or something. It states that transitional fuels can play a role in facilitating the energy transition. Transitional fuels is a term that is often viewed as referring to natural gas. Natural gas emits methane, which is a lot more potent than other kinds of emissions like CO2 emissions. And so there has been a real movement afoot to phase out the use of natural gas stoves, for example, in homes and to transition to induction stoves. And that, I think, is is a really important move. I've seen some interesting articles looking at all kinds of tax credits that are going to be available next year, both to homeowners and also to renters in order to transition away from the use of fossil fuels in the home, gas being being the primary one. What kind of role did our government play? How did the Biden administration play here? Biden himself did not attend. That's one indication of how these talks weren't taken you know, as seriously as, as they could have been. Kamala Harris did attend, but she was there briefly. Uh, John Kerry was there. And I think from what I have gathered from interviewing various climate envoys from island nations, He was speaking out of both sides of his mouth, indicating that, yes, indeed, we have an energy transition that is afoot in the U.S. One can say, sure, that's true. Biden has done more than any other president previously to help this energy transition. On the other hand, under Biden, there has been a remarkable ramping up of all sorts of fossil fuel projects. Liquid natural gas is one that we are really heavily expanding right now. And that is a huge problem. And one of the places we're sending a lot of it to is Germany. Germany just asked the U.S. for uh, permitting needed in order to develop a liquefied natural gas port in Louisiana. And Germany is using a lot more liquefied natural gas because they are phasing out their use of gas from Russia because of the Ukraine war. So that's one that I think, you know, listeners should really keep their eyes open for. There's been a lot of protests against liquefied natural gas ports. Um, I know up the coast here in the Northwest, there's been protests. And off the coast of Texas, there have been Port Arthur, there have been protests too. I'm speaking with the environmental journalist, Tina Gerhardt. Let's talk a bit about uh, the organization of these proceedings. The host country is has the presidency, right? Did they have a substantial role in setting the agenda? They have a substantial role in setting the agenda, but I think one of the things that was problematic, and this was leaked in the days just leading up to this year's COP28 negotiations, they have have a role in setting the agenda. But this year, uh, the United Arab Emirates was trying to use the presidency in order to sign more fossil fuel agreements with other heads of state. And that's obviously something that they're not supposed to be doing. So... (laughs) That's a huge problem. Opening the doors to fossil fuel lobbyists is also a huge problem. So, yeah, I think these are issues. They have the responsibility for making sure that the agreement crosses the finish line as swiftly and smoothly as possible. And this year's president, Sultan Jabber, was a little bit too determined to get this across the finish line swiftly. He gaveled the agreement in before 49 different island nations had returned from the meeting room that they were in to to draft their responses. Typically, before the agreement is gaveled in, you ask if any nation has anything they'd like to say. And as an efficient administrator who was trying to quash dissent, one could say, uh, he gaveled this in, and then the 49 different island nations came into the room, and they were just, they were stunned. I mean, it's, I, one of the things a lot of people focused on, Anne Rasmussen, who's head of the Alliance of Small Island States from Samoa, she voiced utter dismay at this decision having been made with 49 nations not in the room. These are countries, we should recall, um, that are likely to disappear, or many of them are likely to disappear in the coming years. So they have a very high stake in these negotiations. Absolutely. Low-lying island nations are are some of the most at-risk nations. China, they're a big emitter now, um, but though they try to play it out of both sides, they also want to be seen as a poorer country. What was their role like at this event? That's a really important topic in these UN climate negotiations. So the U.S.-China relationship often gets a lot of the focus. This year, interestingly, was one of the first years and ages where I did not see that relationship get the focus. I think there has been a concerted attempt to try to work together in some capacity 
as we were heading into these uh, negotiations to make sure that that wasn't the focus. The U.S. is historically the largest emitter. China is present day the largest emitter. A lot of people say that the emissions that are on China's ledger should be on the U.S.'s ledger because the stuff that they produce, which creates emissions, is stuff that's consumed in the U.S. And then there's more emissions that are generated by shipping it over to the U.S. One can have a a nerdy conversation about that, but I think what's important for listeners to know, and this has, has been reported a little bit, but not enough, is that emissions need to drop by 43% by 2030 to avoid irreversible climate collapse. That means they have to drop this decade, 43% by 2030. They have to peak by 2025. And what has not been reported a lot, but there are signs of this, is that China might be peaking by about 2025 or 2026. And the reason for that is not because it's rained in its coal uh, use enough, which it could do much more on, but it's because it has been so ahead of the curve, ahead of the U.S. in ratcheting up its renewable energy. That's something I'm interested to track in, in, in the coming years and see how that affects these negotiations and also just emissions and the climate crisis. They're obviously developing a, a lot of uh, industrial scale at producing um, renewable energy, solar panels and such. And it seems really perverse to me that the U.S. is uh, so busy ramping up tensions when we should be working together. As the number one and two emitters on the planet, we should be uh, collaborating on this. Uh, And we have technical resources to exchange. We're not doing any of that, right? No, absolutely. I think that's a really important point, Doug. I've been spending some time, as these negotiations just finished last week, thinking big picture And I do find it interesting that both COVID and also the climate crisis really require us to work globally, and that the inability to do so is really going to be our undoing on this issue. And what about the other rich countries? Uh, What kind of role do the EU play? I've heard from some island nations that they're also speaking out of both sides of their mouth, but they have also been doing a remarkable job of transitioning away from the use of fossil fuels and ramping up renewable energy. There's caveats like this ramping up of the use of LNGs by Germany. That's a really big issue. There have been some new contracts for new oil production in the UK that were just signed that were immediately met with protests. Norway is is still producing oil like there's no tomorrow. And so there are definitely things to look out for. Even if they utter pretty words and issue pretty documents, and these don't really qualify as very pretty, but they can um, express all the good intentions they want to, they're absolutely meaningless unless they're carried out at the national level, right? Whatever commitments are made, they're supposed to go home and actually make these things happen. What are the prospects for that? Yeah, I think that's a crucial point. I mean, the UN climate negotiations are not legally binding. People love to criticize the UN in general, and then the climate negotiations in particular for all sorts of reasons. It is the only multilateral forum globally where nations get together to talk about climate change. And I think that alone is a really important reason to keep these negotiations going. You're absolutely right in what you said just previously. All of this hinges on how much action is taken at the nation level, or one shouldn't overlook at the regional, state, city, or local level. Sometimes, especially when we've had previous administrations that didn't believe in climate change or sought to undo a lot of work that had been moved forward to reduce the use of fossil fuels, what really did work is action that was taken at the state level. I mean, you're in New York. I'm speaking from California. These are states that have actually taken more steps than some states in the U.S. have in order to reduce fossil fuels. We could talk about the negatives in both states as well. But I think that there's a lot of room for action at these various levels. And so a lot of what COP29 looks like next year depends on what we do in the interim. And that's where it really depends on not just our representatives, but people nudging them, whether that's through protests or, you know, any other kind of action to make sure that that happens. It's always easy to make fun of the UN. I've done it myself. They do say <laughs> say some ridiculous things in, in ridiculous language. But um, we should probably underscore just how important this kind of forum is, not just for what happens at the event itself, but does it produce networks and ongoing consultation that wouldn't exist without this sort of forum? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it is the only global forum to talk about the climate crisis. We can criticize it and say, yeah, well, that's kind of like Earth Day. Once a year, we have a big spot in all sorts of news and media on the issue. 
but it's a two-week global climate negotiation. So for two weeks, there's coverage. Without it, we would not have that coverage. And I think even if I'm not as naive as to think that we don't live in a capitalist system and the chips aren't stacked against nations in the global south because of that, there is something to the numbers game when you have the majority of the globe looking the wealthier northern nations in the eyes and expressing what they're already experiencing and demanding action. I do think that that has impact. I mean, these nations in the in the global south that have been fighting basically for their very survival to get things like loss and damage across the finish line, the tenacity and the constant push is just incredible. But that's what they have to do in these fora. They do create networks. I think that's right. And do you emerge from this uh, process or, or after this is over? Do you have any uh, feelings of despair or hope? Or what were your uh, feelings after this all ended? Given that it was held in, you know, one of the 10th largest fossil fuel producing nations, and, and people have commented on this, the fact that we came out of the COP28 with fossil fuel included for the first time, that's kind of impressive. And that is a result of this kind of organizing and this push. And I think it's important, too, to underscore the synergy between direct action, either on the ground right there over those two weeks, or just in general direct action that is taking place over the course of the year around the globe, and the negotiations that are taking place inside, right? It's it's both of those taking place, as well as the media coverage of the direct action and the kind of negotiation that I think creates a chorus that shifts the discussion of this and eventually the policy. So I think that was a highlight. The finance, the lacking finance, which is both for the renewable energy shift in the global south, but also to deal with the impacts of the climate crisis. The fact that, that nothing happened there and that it wasn't really reported as intensely as it could have been, that inclusion of fossil fuels without any real plan was was celebrated across all sorts of headlines. I think that to me is is the real bleak spot coming out of these negotiations. 30 years of negotiations and we finally named the culprit. Like, is that a good thing or is that kind of ridiculous? <laughs> finally, Azerbaijan. What, what can we say, first of all, about that as a site for next year's conference? What can we expect from that site, whatever influence it might have in shaping the uh, the agenda? Things to look out for next year. I think the issue of funding that I just mentioned is going to return. I think we're going to see a persistent and stop move both for that and for the phase out of fossil fuels. I think neither of those issues are going to go away. It is another oil producing state. Looking out for how that influences, if it does, is also an important thing to keep an eye on. That was the environmental journalist, Tina Gerhardt. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Music for Airports by Brian Enar, performed on piano by my old neighbor, Bruce Brubaker. I chose it as an homage to the fact that lots of frequent flyer miles are racked up to discuss climate change in Dubai. There are over 100,000 people granted access to the core conference areas and another 400,000 to the commercialized periphery. For COP26, it was estimated that each attendee had a carbon footprint equal to the annual output of a Brazilian, Indian, or Egyptian. Next, Argentina has a wild new president, a rabid libertarian and showman named Javier Malay, the latest in a series of reactionary clowns that alienated, confused, and disgusted voters have put into power around the globe. In his campaign, Malay promised a harsh austerity program for a country in which 40% of the population lives below the poverty line, according to the government's official count. They're also plagued with an inflation rate of 140%. 
Argentina clearly needs some strong medicine, but Dr. Malays is just not up to the job. But Argentinian voters are opting to give him a chance. Here with more is a frequent behind-the-news guest, Forrest Hilton. Forrest is a visiting professor of history at the Federal University of Bahia in Brazil and a contributor to the London Review of Books blog. Forrest Hilton. So Javier Millet, if we in the U.S. know anything about him, it's that he's an eccentric libertarian with funny hair. Um, surely there's more to him than that. So give us the capsule sketch of where he came from, how he got to be president. He had a run, a good run, as a celebrity, a kind of influencer beginning around 2014. And he actually started out as an economist with neo-Keynesian inclinations. He moved into more sort of neoclassical economists and then pretty hard into Hayek and even Ayn Rand, Robert Nozick, and Murray Rothbard is kind of his guru. So he calls himself like a paleo-libertarian capitalist, I think, or an anarcho-capitalist sometimes. But he says that it's really his sister who he has compared to Moses in a televised interview in which he was shedding tears because she apparently has come up with the whole plan. He's just implementing her ideas. Part of his celebrity is due to his success as a cultural warrior, but also, of course, as a a champion of free market ideology. And he denounced people not as far to the right as he, as false liberals in the economic sense, not not real friends of the market, and began to move towards the right-wing nationalism that would be associated with the military dictatorship, and that's represented by his vice president, Villarroel. She appears to have been sidelined for the moment, so it's not clear how much political power the military is going to enjoy with Malay as president. But their reputations are going to get a dusting off and a cleaning up. Like many libertarians, he's got an authoritarian streak. I think that uh, characterized Rothbard, if that's his mentor or hero. Some decrees seem to be like uh, cracking down on dissent and such. I mean, what what about this libertarian authoritarian mix? That is, is nicely summarized, actually, in his electoral pact with his vice president. It would seem, however, that rather than the military, as was the case under the dictatorship, although the police played an incredibly important role in the atrocious repression that led to the estimated disappearance of 30,000 people under the dictatorship in Argentina between 1976 and uh, 83. But it would seem that it's going to be more the police rather than the army that makes a comeback in terms of being the ones in charge of public order, as well as new surveillance technologies. Sandra Bullrich, who was another right-wing candidate, a former left-wing Peronist guerrilla turned right-wing law and order maven. She ran also as a presidential candidate, but eventually was convinced by Mauricio Macri, former President Mauricio Macri, who was in charge from 2015 to 2019. He convinced Bullrich to throw her support behind Millet and as a result was rewarded with the Secretary of Security. She is the one who will be spearheading new legislation, which is already ready because tomorrow is going to be a dramatic test of the strength of trade unions and social movements, as well as different political parties against this new government. So the idea that Millet and Bullrich and some of the other more repressive elements of the coalition have is to nip any kind of mass direct action and opposition to government-mandated stagflation, they want to nip that in the bud tomorrow. And so they're going ahead with extremely repressive legislation that should give the police something of a carte blanche to arrest protesters, put them under surveillance, presumably uh, use violence and physical force against them. And we'll see how that unfolds. But there's no doubt that tomorrow is shaping up to be a really dramatic test of forces. One of his first policy moves was to devalue the peso by 50%. Um, That's going to feed domestic inflation, raise the cost of living dramatically. This is going to be very unpopular. Any initial reaction to that shock package? The perspective to some degree between the government and opposition movements, trade unions and parties is similar in that a strong show of force needs to be forthcoming immediately. Tomorrow really is the day for everybody to manifest their opposition. 
to this structural adjustment package, which is worth noting is like the fifth. There was one in 1958. There was another in 1975, another in 1977, another in 1990, and now this one in 2023. And to some degree, the great question is exactly how much will the middle class be able to tolerate in terms of taking a hit to its standard of living? Because there can be little doubt that there's going to be really dramatic and widespread suffering among Argentine's working classes and pretty dramatic and widespread protest as well. The question mark is around you know, exactly how the middle classes are going to respond to this, which is going to affect them. But will they be willing to take to the streets and protest and mobilize against this government or not? Or will there be something of a split within the middle class, you know, along political lines? Okay, let's do some history now. Peronism, a word often thrown around when people talk about Argentina, but uh, I'm not sure I or many others are clear and precisely what it means. So uh, in your note to me, you um, outlined the peculiar state capital labor relations that gave Peronism its long legs in Argentina from the 1940s to the 1980s. So what do you mean by that? Give us an outline of what the Peronism was about. What was its model? Argentina, up until the First World War, was probably more probably comparable to Australia, New Zealand, and Canada in terms of production of meat and cereals, largely for the British market. And sustained economic growth and development in Argentina between 1880 and 1930 with migration that was proportionately double the rate of migration to the United States in the period when the United States was also receiving the largest number of immigrants that it had yet received. So during this period when production of cereals, meat, hides, and so forth really took off, railroads obviously proliferated. There was a great deal of British capital invested in Argentina because the products were headed towards the British market. And there was considerable sort of state-led infrastructural development. In his inaugural discourse, Millet named this one president of Argentina, Julio Argentino Roca, who successfully vanquished the indigenous population of the south of Argentina in a genocidal campaign of ethnic cleansing, and then the Argentine state building and the construction of this agro-export market followed. That's Millet's only historical reference in his inaugural discourse as that particular president. And I guess the idea is a sort of strong state essentially paving the way for markets to do their magic. Where does Peronism come into play? Argentina had an incredibly powerful anarcho-syndicalist labor movement up through the First World War, but its, its strikes were successfully crushed. And as in the United States throughout the 1920s, company unionism was prevalent and there was no agrarian reform such that when the 1930s hit, Argentina went through a couple very difficult years as a result of the Great Depression, but quickly recovered. And they gained essentially privileged access to British markets. And in the 1930s, for the first time, began to industrialize. Industrialization in the 30s in Argentina was not accompanied by mass organization of industrial trade unions. What you had was new labor force different from the previous kind of working class configuration. Much of it was in foreign owned packing plants. And these plants were extremely difficult to organize because of the way that they were segmented and the division of labor worked to divide people of different ethnicities, nationalities, religions, genders from each other within the plants. And some of these plants were owned by firms like Armour and Swift, who had considerable experience sort of breaking meatpackers unions. As meatpacking grew and other industries in Argentina grew alongside it, the trade union movement did not. And that's where Peronism in Peron comes in. There was no breakthrough from the left in Argentina during the 1930s. The breakthrough when it came, came from the right with Peron as the minister of labor and a strike wave in, from 1943 to uh, 1945. What Peron did was ride a tiger of industrial labor and bring them into the nation through trade unions in such a way as to bypass the old oligarchy. He really brought very significant improvements to working class people in a very short period of time, basically in the late 40s. 
But then by the 1950s, Argentinian industrialization and Peronism had really hit a wall, losing dynamism and slower and slower rates of economic growth. So even as Peronism failed to deliver the goods, as it came under attack from right-wing conservative forces, Peronism developed a very militant and semi-underground left-wing in resistance and opposition to the more conservative right-wing forces. And that eventually led to the Argentine military dictatorship in 1976, the purpose of which was really to vanquish all popular Peronist forces. And the first structural adjustment came into play in the mid-70s. The Ministry of Economics at the time implemented it with the idea of shifting Argentina away from its agro-export and industrial character to a much more financial and rentier-type capitalism. They were getting loans on very soft terms from banks in in New York in order to, uh, to finance their government spending. And that obviously blew up in the debt crisis in the early 1980s, just as Argentina went to war with Britain over the Malvinas Islands, thinking mistakenly that the United States would back Argentina against Great Britain and uh, finding out that that was not the case. And that meant the end of the military dictatorship and a sort of attempt at stabilization of Argentine society under new, more democratic terms. But Peronism remained the kind of ghost in the wilderness and returned to power with uh, Carlos Menem at the end of the 1980s and through the 1990s. And what Carlos Menem did was wed this kind of right-wing, corporatist, working-class movement that had a left wing but was not anti-capitalist by any means. Carlos Menem wedded this whole structure, or what remained of it, I should say, to kind of neoliberal market reforms. And so Carlos Menem's structural adjustment package, 1990, was yet another one of these, but it was done by a Peronist and in the name of sort of renovating Peronism, very much in the kind of third way style of Bill Clinton in the United States or Tony Blair in the UK. This was the Argentine version of that. And it really led to an orgy of corruption, speculation, asset bubbles that popped in 2001 and led to a banking and currency collapse In the aftermath of that instability and destruction of the neoliberal Argentina of the 1990s, nobody wanted to be associated with Menem. First, Nestor Kirchner took over. He became president in 2003, then was president until 2007. And then his wife, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, took over and was president from 2007 and 2015. And they made a deliberate effort to move back in a more statist, redistributionist Peronist mode in order to essentially stabilize a dramatically chaotic and unstable society that Menem had produced, but with the kind of caveat that they would preserve consumption as the center of social, cultural, and economic life, like many progressive Latin American governments in the first decade of the 21st century. What they aimed to do was elevate consumption and broaden and deepen consumer demand and obviously did that through generous credit policies for the most part and achieved it to a large degree, at least for a time. I'm speaking with the historian Forrest Hilton. There was really no productive base uh, for all that consumption, was there? No, there was never any productive base. And I'm not aware of a single case in Latin America where there was much of a productive base. It was all based on on rents and exports of primary products principally. So what happened in Argentina beginning in the 1970s was also with the rise of this finance, rentier capitalism, deindustrialization, and a shift towards primary products and natural resource exports. Now it's soy principally. But there again, you know, landed property and agribusiness interests play an extremely powerful role in this new right-wing coalition. And for the time being under Malay, it looks as though those interests are going to do much better than any that are connected to domestic industry or what remains of manufacturing or um, public services. Now, a stylized history of the last century or so is that A century ago, early 20th century, Argentina was very rich. It's been declining ever since. 
there have been a series of failed policy efforts followed by defaults and inflations, and the long-term trajectory of relative impoverishment continues. Is that a pretty fair picture? Poverty has exploded dramatically in Argentina in the 21st century. To a large degree, the, the Kirchners did manage to kind of stabilize Argentine society, reduce the worst aspects of inequality that Menem had generated. Yet, obviously, because there was no solid productive base, it wasn't sustainable over the long term. When Mauricio Macri took over in 2015, he had essentially the same program that Menem had and some of the same personnel. And the idea was once again to introduce sort of ultra-Orthodox neoliberal measures and get rid of the sort of plebeian element that Menem's neoliberalism had and really hand things back over to the elite that, that owns the country and to do so through politics. Yet Macri, of course, with these hyper-Orthodox recipes, didn't solve any of the pressing problems of Argentinian people, and poverty certainly deepened on his watch, as did corruption scandal after corruption scandal. They failed on their own terms. What's somewhat striking is the extent to which Millet recycles so much of these failed projects of the past with new ideological baggage. What is his base, popular and or elite? Is there much of one, or do people just launcher him out of desperation or take the outsider, the maverick, the entertaining wacko? One Argentine columnist named Pablo Stefanoni said that this was the, the equivalent of political bungee jumping. And the reason that a majority of Argentines would go in for something like that is precisely because of the kind of failure and exhaustion of Peronism to solve any of these problems, to the extent that it was able to solve some problems partially and temporarily from, say, 2003 to 2015. Once Alberto Fernandez came to power in 2019, it was clear that Peronism could no longer deliver the goods, even in terms of bumping debt-driven consumption. They couldn't even do that. And so poverty that had really proliferated under Macri did not really abate, certainly not significantly, under Alberto Fernandez. And of course, then the COVID pandemic played into this as well, and it was absolutely disastrous in Argentina. And in fact, Malay really made his most important move politically in 2020 and emerged as a sort of leading critic of the government's COVID policy. What position did he take? Did he take the standard right-wing uh, <laughs> line on COVID? Absolutely, because he is plugged into these kind of international circles. And no matter how idiosyncratic he seems with the business about dreaming of talking to his dogs, which I think plays reasonably well on social media. And of course, social media is not to be underestimated in trying to make sense of Malay's ability to get his message out to just about everybody and to appeal to a lot of people on a range of grounds, some of them pretty bizarre. But in an age where politicians are expected to be entertainment and entertaining, Malay succeeded in doing that probably better than anyone would have expected, given that he's a sort of economist influencer with paleo-libertarian ideas. One doesn't expect much entertainment from economists, so he yeah, steps away so from the norm there. He does. And, and of course, you know, having been in a Rolling Stones cover band, he has a sense of showmanship, which clearly works in his favor. In terms of his appeal, this I can't quite understand how his announced electoral program and goals could inspire such enthusiasm among so many people who are not going to benefit in any way from these programs and policies, namely structural adjustment leading to deliberate stagflation, with the idea that high inflation is going to help purify everything. And once the flames have burned enough things down to ashes, it'll be time to start again. Similar to Brazil, there's a sector of the population, something like an upper layer of the, of the working class or the lower middle class, voted heavily for Malay. And again, he took every single district except Buenos Aires, which he almost took, and then one other, Santiago de Estero, I think. And so that just goes to show you that the sweep was nationwide. He's got the militarists and kind of the traditional right-wing parties behind him. He's got Mauricio Macri, who has the contacts and the personnel in the regions that allow for the building of this kind of nationwide right-wing coalition. He clearly had broad support within an untold number of middle-class people, 
Obviously, Malay took the vote of the wealthy, both urban and rural. And what he really did was assemble a coalition that included just about everybody on the right that could be imagined. I think the final polls had he and uh, the, the Peronist candidate, Sergio Massa, more or less neck and neck. But, you know, Massa was a pretty uncharismatic, aparastic type guy who had come up through the Peronist ranks and absolutely the epitome of the professional politician. And he really didn't have anything to offer people. He was a very hard candidate for anyone to get especially excited about, and they didn't. I think the way to read it really is the kind of last gasp of Peronism. Those could be famous last words on my part. Peronism is never, apparently is never dead, but it really would seem that at least an important cycle has now been completed they do seem to have something of a mandate for, in Malay's words, taking a, a chainsaw through the economy. Okay, uh, let's pivot somewhat dramatically to the role of Israel in the Latin American right. You have an interesting piece on the topic in the London Review of Books blog. Um, what's going on there? What's Israel doing for the Latin American right? It's strange. In the case of Argentina, there's 200,000 Jewish people in Argentina, which is the largest diaspora in Latin America. But you know, they're mostly reformed or uh, masorti, as it's called in Spanish, and then secular. The Orthodox in Argentina are a very tiny minority, but I guess they have some representation within leading business and financial circles. Millet, upon winning the election, declared that Tel Aviv would be one of the first places he would visit, that he would move the Argentine embassy to Jerusalem. When Millet came to New York, he visited uh, Rabbi Schneerson's grave in Queens, thus affirming his ties to some of the most uh, ultra-right-wing Zionist settler sects. Of course, uh, Schneerson is the father of the Lubavitchers. So Millet has drawn extremely close to the Chabad sect and the Lubavitchers and has named his rabbi, because he's now converted to Judaism, a guy named Axel Wanish. He apparently is going to be the new Argentine ambassador to Israel. Malay is trying to kind of reconfigure Argentine foreign policy dramatically in favor of alignment with the United States. But it's also clear that he has some kind of deep ideological and even spiritual commitment to this. That goes beyond what we saw among the Bolsonaro clan, which, as I mentioned in that LRB column, also like to drape itself in the Israeli flag in marches and demonstrations and various public events. It'd be a good question to try to find the answer to in terms of when did this Israeli flag begin to make its appearance as a unifying symbol among the Latin American right. My guess that it probably goes back to around 2013, 2014 in Brazil, when the right wing managed to take over what had initially begun as basically left-wing protests against the government of Dilma Rousseff. And as those mass protests in 2013 morphed from left to right, I would imagine that's when those Israeli flags began to make their appearance because that was the first real appearance of the Brazilian far right in the streets, a taste of what was to come. That's what I really associate that Israeli flag with on the new Latin American right is the willingness to take to the streets and take a martial and confrontational posture from the commanding heights of the state towards any expression of, of social protest. It is a form of authoritarianism. And were Malay to associate himself with any of the other predominant currents in Argentina, I'm not sure he would get the same bang for his buck. But it appears that so far, because of his rock rib support for Israel, that he has a significant portion of the Argentine Jewish diaspora in his corner. And of course, a significant portion uh, of that diaspora is anti-Zionist in Argentina as well. It's remarkable, though, that this has congealed as a symbol, particularly in recent years, and nowhere more so than Argentina right now with Malay. You uh, say in the LRB piece that uh, in uh, Colombia's leading right-wing paramilitary narco warlord, Carlos Castaño, wrote in his autobiography that training with the Israelis in Lebanon taught him to pass over the distinction between civilians and combatants, which is a, a very interesting commentary on present events, too. Absolutely. The idea that paramilitary forces 
are designed specifically to do the kind of dirty work of the army and that the army in counterinsurgency campaigns needs the help of paramilitary forces and needs to enlist the help of civilians in intelligence work and passing of information and so forth. And either civilians are with the armed forces and the paramilitary forces, or they can be presumed to be terrorists. The junta, the generals did not like Jews and persecuted them. Yet this guy who admires that period to some degree is now very pro-Zionist, pro-Israel. But we're seeing this, you know, with some of the European right-wing parties too, with historic ties to Nazis who like kind of wrote the book on anti-Semitism. It's really amazing to see this change from this movement that was once either mildly or extremely anti-Semitic to one that is just wildly pro-Zionist. Do you have any thoughts on what's going on here? I find it equally baffling. And about the only thing I can say is that we saw some of that in Brazil under Bolsonaro, and I have not been able to piece together how exactly these things get worked out. And I have the same question about the neo-Nazis from the Argentine military who cooperated with people from Israeli intelligence and the Israeli military to train death squads in Central America in like the late 1970s, early 1980s. How did they deal with with each other and evident clashes in their ideologies? I, I don't know how they square that circle, but I suppose the answer is anti-communist counterinsurgency. And what's so odd about Argentina is there was never really much communism to speak of. And so a tepid reformism that has often been right wing as it has been left wing is demonized as if it were the equivalent of communism. But I guess that's part of the particularity uh, or specificity of Argentine history as well. That was Forrest Hilton, visiting professor of history at the Federal University of Bahia in Brazil. And you can find his piece on the Latin American rights love affair with Israel on the London Review of Books website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Perhaps unusually for such a hardened Marxist, I get all sentimental around this time of year and think we should take seriously all that business about peace and love that circulates in December. In that spirit, let's go out with this, the opening of Bach's Christmas Oratorio, performed by the English Baroque soloist led by John Elliot Gardner. Till next week, bye.